Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to Invesco's latest Ben Squared podcast, uh, our attempt at a 10-minute update on the major market stories and themes brought to you by Ben Jones, uh, Invesco's head of macro research, uh, and myself, Ben Gutteridge, Invesco's head of chatting. Uh, ben, thanks so much for being with us. How are you? A very smooth start to the day. Uh, no, Ben, it wasn't a smooth start today. I had a really long journey in, and um, I can't decide whether that is just a function of the, the very cold weather and everybody driving their kids to school, or perhaps just resilience in the UK economy, that everybody is out in their cars driving to work, and it's a it's a sign of economic strength. So I haven't quite quite decided. I need a couple more cups of coffee before I get there. Well, isn't that a perfect snapshot of your personality, Ben? Always sort of framing things with an economic context, even a game of tennis, perhaps. I don't know. But uh, look, it's a pleasure to talk to you. But uh, I'm also going to be I'm going to be seeing quite a lot of you uh, in the coming days, Ben. On the 23rd of January, we shall be talking at more length about uh, investment. So if uh, the audience enjoys this podcast, there's a chance they might enjoy an extended conversation between us. Uh, but the audience will also get some valuable uh, CPD for attending that event, as I said, on the 23rd of January. So you can get onto our website and look out for that intelligence webinar uh, and uh, sign up. Uh, but anyway, returning to today's conversation and uh, in a moment we we'll want to talk to Ben, I think really about the sort of the major, returning to the major market discussion points, you know, inflation uh, and the Fed, uh, a little bit of, uh, a bit about rate, rate cuts, and then a little bit about the geopolitics, which uh, continues to permeate news flow. Um, but before any of that, I want to remind the audience this podcast is intended for UK professional investors only, should not be considered as investment advice, and that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Uh, finally, do hang on after the conversation is finished to hear some additional important disclaimers. Right, Ben, um, markets wobbling a little bit this year, certainly after the strength we've seen in November and December. So maybe that's sort of a natural thing that happens in markets. But maybe there's a little bit of concern about, you know, the glide path, you know, what's happening with inflation. Maybe we've had a disappointing number on inflation since we've last spoken. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, the the change of a calendar year shouldn't really change the narrative um, uh, by definition, but but often it does. Interestingly enough, um, and I think last week when we had the CPI numbers uh, from the US, there was certainly a bit of a threat to that um, sort of disinflation narrative that we became used to at the end of last year. So um, the inflation reading for or the headline CPI reading came in at 3.4 percent, which was higher than the consensus expected and higher than November's reading. Um, and I was a little bit surprised by that, because if you looked at things like gasoline prices at the end of last year, they'd continue to fall over the course of the, the month. Um, some of the other real-time measures of inflation that I was looking at suggested it might come in a little bit softer. Um, there is one measure that I, I urge people to look at, which is the Cleveland Fed nowcast measure. Um, that was actually suggesting that inflation would come in at 0.3% um, month on month, which is exactly what it did. So I probably should have put a little bit more weight um, on that measure. Um, and then within the inflation numbers that came through, it was still very much that services inflation was driving those, those higher um, readings. Uh, we had things like a 1% increase in airfares in, in December, which again was a little bit of a surprise, but speaks to the strength and resilience in the consumer and the services sector. Um, auto prices, interestingly, they were a little bit higher as well. Um, but broadly speaking, um, goods inflation was um, still weaker um, over the course of, um, of December. So you've got this split between goods inflation and um, 
services inflation. And that, that's, I think, got to narrow over the course of the, um, the coming year. But exactly how that will happen remains to be seen. Um, but to be honest with you, Ben, the market wasn't really phased by that. And in fact, on the day and certainly over the week, um, yields actually fell over the course of the, um, the week. Now, we did get the PPI data on Friday following the CPI data, um, and that was a little bit uh, better, as in it was a, a little bit lower. And that does tend to be the slightly better guide for the Fed's preferred PCE measures. Um, so I think that was the one that I think has given a bit of the, um, uh, I guess, support or strength to the market to kind of continue a little bit with this kind of dovish narrative, if not quite as extreme as we saw in the last three months of, or last two and a half months, really, wasn't it, of, um, of 2023. Oh, so can you can you remind us then, Ben, you know, what, what is the assessment of what markets are anticipating on rate cuts uh, mm-hmm. and how that sort of plays off against how, your economic expectations? Sure. So, um, I mean, if you look at the Fed, um, essentially market pricing, if you look at Fed fund futures, is telling us that we should get six cuts um, over the course of this year, that's six 25 basis points cuts. Interestingly enough, it's actually more or less exactly the same for the ECB. Um, fewer for the Bank of England, it's, it's four cuts that are coming through there. Now, I think the problem with looking at that data is really what that is telling you is the, the average of a lot of different views. So you've got the views of those people that think that we're going to get the soft landing, growth is going to be a lot more resilient, and you get fewer than six um, cuts this year. And then you've got other people in the camp that think that the economy is going to sort of fall off a cliff and then you're going to get very deep cuts and you're going to get many more than six. And then obviously it averages out somewhere um, in the middle. Um, at the moment, I have to say, I mean, I think from what I'm seeing in the um, inflation data, what I'm seeing in the strength of households and, and corporate balance sheets, um, the strength of fiscal spending that's going to continue in the US through the course of this year, I think that last mile of getting down to 2% target inflation in the US is going to be more of a challenge than some of the optimists. Um, think. And I think that is going to mean that we're probably not going to get the six um, cuts um, from the Fed this year. I think we're likely to get fewer than um, than that. As I say, I mean, if, if growth really rolls over and if, if unemployment starts to um, ramp higher, I'm going to change my view there. But my base case at the moment is that we get fewer than that six cuts. The other question is, when do those six, when do those cuts start to come through? And again, the consensus is that we get the first one of those cuts in uh, in March of this year. And actually, I think I'm probably going to sit in that consensus camp at the moment. I mean, again, look, listening to some of the, the rhetoric that's coming out, looking at the sort of direction of the, um, the, the PPI data and the PCE data, I suspect the Fed wants to cut and probably will cut in um, in March. Um, the other thing that I think just to highlight very quickly before we get on to some of the geopolitics and, and some of the supply chain side of things is that there are some other data out there that are saying there is more um, resilience in, in global growth data. So I was looking last week at the export order numbers from Taiwan, for example, they've ticked up and um, interestingly, actually exports to the US have now overtaken exports to um, China from Taiwan. And, and even in Europe, Swedish PMI data is looking a little bit stronger. That tends to be a bit of a, you can say, canary in the coal mine or leading indicator. And that's pointing to slightly more stable growth as well. So um, I do wonder actually whether I think people that are looking for all these rate cuts are going to be disappointed in 2024. Okay, well, we'll see how, how that plays out. But but before we do geopolitics, cover geopolitics, sort of cool twist from this uh, host, reflecting on your miserable journey to work, there's actually some data that came out this morning from the UK that on balance 
suggested, I think, was sort of a modest miss to the downside on mm. wages, which is sort of supportive for a uh, not not wholesale, but a little bit more supportive for earlier rate cuts uh, in in the UK. And you talked about the market pricing less rate mm. cuts in the UK versus those in the US. How are you feeling about that standoff, that expectation in markets uh, of Fed versus Bank of England? Yeah, I mean, terribly unfair question, Ben, because I've only had one <laughs> and a half cups of coffee so far this morning. But um, but no, you're you're right. I mean, I think. The, that data there does uh, is sort of heading in the right direction in terms of my narrative that you get um, more cuts from the Bank of England than are priced this year and you get fewer from the, the Fed. I think there's going to be a closing um, of that gap. Um, so, yeah, my, my slightly sort of tongue in cheek, it's very busy on the rows. That re- reflects economic strength. I still think there's enough in the UK, actually, where um, we will start to see growth um, starting to slow a little bit and the, the Bank of England starting to, to change. That, uh, that rhetoric. So I think we'll see a little bit of those um, pulled forward. I don't. I want to be clear, though, I don't think actually that the UK heads into a deep recession this year. And again, you and I have talked about this before. I have reassessed my view. And I think things like the, the strength in household balance sheets is actually reasonably decent in the UK. Um, and if you look at things like mortgage rates, and, and obviously they're, they're tied to swap rates, they've really started to come come lower over the course of, uh, of recent months. And you're seeing some of the high street banks really sort of fighting off it against each other to bring those mortgage rates down. If that continues, actually that can lead to probably a better economic outcome from the UK than, than certainly I thought was going to happen three, six, nine months ago. Okay, thanks, Ben. Uh, on geopolitics, then uh, clearly our newswires uh, flush with stories of these uh, troubling events uh, in the Red in the Red Sea um, and the sort of U.S. or Western U.S. U.K. Western response. You know, how is this impacting like inflation expectations at the moment? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I, I've got to say, I'm I'm really interested. It's a fascinating area. So sort of, just the whole sort of supply chain dynamics, and obviously, certainly geopolitics in the, in this area. And, and certainly, if you get the supply chain um, disruptions, uh, we don't have to look back far in history, just to the COVID period, to see how that can impact um, inflation. So if we look at what's going on in uh, the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, uh, which is that sort of link into the Red Sea going up to the Suez Canal, Houthis attacking container ships there, um, and US and UK forces have obviously responded. Um, but what is happening is many, many private shipping firms, particularly container shipping firms, are now avoiding this route. And that's largely because the insurance costs um, for insuring ships going through that area have really um, rocketed. So uh, port shortage wise perhaps rocketed there. But um, so costs going up significantly. That obviously will um, ultimately have some kind of impact on, on inflation, because if the uh, the price of goods being shipped from Asia, particularly to Europe, in this case, that's that main Europe uh, route, um, go up, that is going to have an end uh, impact on um, on end inflation. Now, most of the goods that are going through that route tend to be end finished products. It's things like machinery and cars, for example. There's not really a lot of food stuff that go through there. There's a little bit of uh, cereals. Um, so we're probably not going to see this on, um, uh, on food inflation, but we will see it on end products. So I think the important thing also to think about, though, is that um, although um, normally what we see going through that kind of route is um, container vessels of around about sort of 50 to 60 a, um, uh, a week on average, it's down to about 17 now. The important thing to note is that it doesn't mean that those ships can't get to their end destination. It just means they have to take a different route. And there's two different routes they can take. Um, so the normal route 
through the Suez Canal is around about 11,000 nautical miles from Asia to Europe. If they go around the, the south of Africa, around the Cape of Good Hope, that adds about um, 3,000 nautical miles and about, importantly, eight to 10 days extra on the sail. Um, there's a really fascinating paper that I was reading yesterday that sort of looked at how you can reroute these um, sort of ships and what's the, the shortest um, transit. And you can obviously go the other way around the world. And you can go through the Panama Canal, um, of course, as well. Um, and their initial sort of estimate was, well, if you take the, just the shortest route, that means that then there's going to be a 270% roughly increase in transit through the Panama Canal. The problem with that analysis, and they make this point in the paper, is that actually you can't do that because the Panama Canal is limited to 40 vessels today. So the amount of water you need for the locks and things like that is um, means you can't get more than 40 vessels um, through on a daily basis. So it means that there's going to have to be this sort of real rerouting of different ships um, around the world and, and times are going to take um, longer. The problem also that that has is that then when you arrive at your um, port, you're going to arrive at either a, um, a later time and you can then get these snarls up um, in these ports and you've got ships then waiting to, to unload. So you get this um, congestion building up and that again increases costs involved in transporting um, goods. And that ultimately is going to be passed on to consumers at some point down the um, down the line. So um, it can certainly have a, a, a significant threat to inflation. As I say, we just need to look at the COVID period to see the kind of things that can, can happen there. In terms of the people that are likely to see that greater inflation story, it's going to be Europe because that's going to be the, the, the destination for most of those goods, of course. But interestingly as well, there are some other people that are going to potentially lose out on this. Um, India, which has been the big winner really over the last year or so from some of these geopolitical tensions, um, that could suffer um, as well because much of the oil that has been coming from Russia into India goes southbound through the Suez um, Canal. And Although oil vessels have largely been left alone so far, if that starts to change or, again, the insurance cost starts to go up for, for some of that route, then that could start to hit um, India um, as well. Um, obviously, you've got the Egyptians um, that are losing out because they're not picking up their, their tariffs from ships passing through the, um, the Suez Canal as well. So they're going to be um, seeing that as a, um, as a bit of a concern. Um, then the final thing I'd say on that point is that at the moment, um, this is one marine choke point. There are many marine choke points um, around the world. Um, and it, this is one that can be kind of um, avoided and you can have some rerouting. But what's to say that we're not going to see another one of, of these um, choke points, um, say in the the South China Sea, we'll come on to Taiwan in a second, um, or um, the, the Strait of Hormuz, uh, for example. So what it just really, really for me highlights is there are still an awful lot of vulnerabilities, and that means that inflation going forward is likely to be more volatile. Um, again, it sort of plays this idea that we've seen the, the end of the great moderation that we've had for sort of the last 15, 20 years or so um, in, uh, in inflation. So a little bit of a concern. That said, Markets at the moment are taking it, well, this is kind of a, a bit of a, um, it's a negative from a risk on, risk off um, perspective. And it means that they're buying haven assets. So actually, um, investors have been um, sort of, um, I guess, buying bonds on the back of this. It's been driving prices um, um, a little bit um, a little bit lower. Oh, sorry, uh, buying driving prices higher, yields lower, apologies. Um, um, but longer term, I say this, this could have, worrying effects for um, future inflation, which could then hamper central banks' ability to, uh, to cut rates.
All right, Ben, thanks. Very thorough response there. The final comment, as you said, would be reference to Taiwan. Um, we had the election results. It seems though sort of the nominally independent party won, but a less uh, less emphatic victory than 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 before. So Mark, it's not really worried about it. Are you? Would you be in that camp too? Yeah, generally, I think so. I mean, I think this was. I mean, again, it was really hard to say what is the the best and the worst outcome. I think most people kind of would have thought that the worst outcome, from a geopolitical sense at least, would have been that if. William Lai and the DPP um, got a very resounding victory or a kind of landslide. That did not happen. Um, they're now facing a divided government. Um, so they'll have to form a coalition with or legislative coalition with the KMT and the Taiwan People's Party. Um, and I think probably what that means is that um, it will sort of temper any of those sort of separatist kind of um, um, arguments that are perhaps there um, in Taiwan. Um, certainly in his acceptance speech, Lai affirmed the important responsibility to maintain peace and stability. Um, so I think, again, that sort of maintain is the key point. I think the status quo is really my base case, and certainly a lot of the, the people that I listen to and watch uh, around this area are talking the same sort of thing. So there'll be some comments from China, there'll be some sort of incursions into Taiwanese airspace. That's not essentially new, um, but I, at the moment, I think the, the prospect of a um, of a blockade and certainly an invasion is still very, very low down on the um, uh, on the probability um, sort of uh, sort of list. Um, that said, what I would say, obviously, the we've, we've talked about marine choke points already, but the Strait of um, uh, sorry, the South China Sea is another one of these kind of choke points and, and tensions in these areas would mean um, a significant sort of rerouting of trade. It'd be a significant disruption to um, to global trade. And if there was a formal blockade by China of Taiwan, as I say very low probability in my mind, but if it were to happen, um, I think that would be a very, very significant disruption to the um, uh, to, to global trade and to the, the global economy more broadly. One of the benefits of my very long journey in this morning was that I was listening to a lot of podcasts, and I would urge people to listen to um, the Bloomberg Odlots podcast that was released um, earlier this week that looks at um, the potential economic ramifications of such a, um, a blockade, um, and their estimates were that it would be somewhere in the order of sort of 10% of GDP would be the hit that you take if you've got a significant disruption um, in that area. And that kind of dwarfs what we saw in, in COVID or the, the GFC, uh, for example. So I think what this means is that the only thing that I can say for certain, really, is that um, geopolitical risks are something that you and I and investors are probably going to be talking about for an awful lot um, over the course of this year and probably, to be fair, in, in years to come. Yes, yes, uh, uh, we, we certainly will. Thoughtful stuff, interesting stuff, sometimes terrifying stuff. Uh, but also, as you've said in the past, often um, doesn't have quite the same market impact as you might sort of anticipate at first blush. But as I said, we can talk about that much more in future podcasts. Ben, thanks very much for your time. Uh, before our audience goes, I want to remind uh, them that the follow of the following important disclaimers, uh, the value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations. Investors may not get back the full amount invested. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not 
not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset, class, security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.